0: Welcome to Middle Grade Mavens, where two author mums discuss their favourite middle grade books, provide recommendations, and share insider industry tips for authors trying their hand at middle grade. Julie Ann Grasso is the author of the Frankie DuPont mystery series, cupcake enthusiast and part-time library book wrangler. Pamela Uckerman is a writer, dancer, and homeschooling mum who sometimes finds time for sleep. Both Julie and Pamela devour middle-grade books, not only for research, but to share with their combined brood of four munchkins.
1: Nikki Greenberg is a writer and illustrator based in Melbourne, Australia. Her first books, The Digits series, were published when she was 15 years old. She later spent 10 years disguised as a lawyer while maintaining a not-so-secret other life as a comics artist and children's book author. In 2008, Nikki's innovative graphic adaptation of The Great Gatsby was selected as a white raven at the Bologna Book Fair. Her second graphic adaptation, Hamlet, was joint winner of the 2011 Children's Book Council of Australia Picture Book of the Year Award. Her latest book is The Detective's Guide to Ocean Travel, published by Affirm Press in February of this year. Wow, that's quite an introduction. Welcome, Nikki, to Middle Grade Mavens.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: So your latest book, The Detective's Guide to Ocean Travel, is a is a romping middle grade mystery. Can you tell us what prompted you to branch out and write a middle grade mystery novel and why you chose to set it on a Cunard cruise liner?
2: Well I've I've written a few uh, perhaps slightly younger middle grade books and they've always had a little bit of an aspect of um, mystery or suspense or intrigue in there, and uh, like most readers, I love a bit of suspense and intrigue. I was a massive Agatha Christie fan growing up. I think I read probably 60 of her books, oh, wow. um, and the idea of writing a mystery has sort of been percolating over the last five years for me, and I was really drawn to these grand golden age uh, ocean line that ocean liners, the transatlantic liners of um, early in the 20th century in particular, uh, because they were so powerful and glamorous and fascinating and they were really interesting condensed microcosms of society, you had the incredibly opulent first class areas, then you had the second class areas and then the crowded um, much less glamorous third-class areas. And these were, these were places that didn't mix. And it was a very sort of intense uh, thing, an ocean voyage. So it seemed like just a fantastic uh, place to set a story, and a mystery story, a locked room mystery.
1: Yes. <laughs> and there aren't a lot of mysteries for middle grade. Is that right? I haven't really come across many.
2: Uh, I th- there, there are some terrific mysteries for middle grade. I mean, the, the murder most unladylike series by um, Robin Stevens jumps to mind. Yeah, yes yes. and yep. we have a very big fan in our household. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, and I, I've tried not to get too stuck into reading too many of them while I was writing mine, mm-hmm. yeah. because I had to kind of keep within my own little world there, but um, there's some terrific ones out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, as a as a teenager, I loved mysteries, and I found a series that was written by a Frenchman, and they were translated to English. and My library had a whole stack of them, <laughs> so I just go and grab a few every every visit. So it's nice to see some that are actually written specifically for you know the middle grade market. Was was there a lot of research required before you began, or did you dive into writing the mystery aspect of the story first?
2: There was a massive amount of research for this book. Um, I researched it probably through sort of over a period of about five years, while I was writing other books as well, writing and illustrating. Um, and huge amount of research. The ships themselves and what ocean travel was like at that time is an enormous topic. Uh, just what uh, society in um, in England in New York, uh, the the life on these liners, what, what all of these things were like, huge amount of uh, of research and information to delve into, and I was still researching and learning even as I was writing it. And It took a long time to kind of shape the story as well because as I learned more, it changed what I wanted to write about. I knew from the beginning that, um, well, no, not from the very beginning, but my very first kind of... Wild out there idea was uh, the the characters were going to be animals uh, animals who behaved like humans uh, set on one of these ocean liners, but that morphed reasonably quickly into it being human characters and once i'd decided on that, I knew that the protagonist would be a girl whose father was the captain the captain of the ocean liner, and that he would be a very troubled character with a powerful connection to his ship, uh, even though that ship had caused great tragedy in his life.
1: Yeah, it's a very powerful storyline that's running behind the mystery. Um, And and I'm guessing the research came down to, you know, such small details as as the jewelry they wore and the food that they ate on the cruise liners.
2: Absolutely. I was looking at um, old menu cards from uh, ships of that era. Uh, I was looking at what they ate in um, in the different classes on the ship. Uh, there's a fantastic picture that I found. It was a graphic showing uh, the quantities of food that would be loaded onto um, a Cunard liner to supply first class. And it was a a kind of an advertising brochure to show people just how extravagant, how much food, how, how much it would take To uh, feed all of these people, these thousands of people, um, on their six-day voyage, so it was it it was pretty fascinating stuff to research.
1: Mm, I can imagine. And so, the character of Peppa has her own guide to ocean travel within the book. Was that inspired by something that you read or found? Did you have something like that?
2: Uh, So that that guide um, is belongs to her governess the very um the very querulous and fussy miss quacken and in the book it's called the lady's guide to ocean travel and that is based on a real book which is called ocean notes and foreign travel for ladies it's a real book it was published uh, about 30 years earlier than this story is set um, and i have read the the whole book and it's um it's it's uh, very dated, let's just say. <laughs> um, uh, and, late, 18,
1: late 1880s or so, is that, is that about right?
2: Yes, and the, there's, this, um, there's this little nugget of advice that Miss Quacken reads out about it being best to dress well on an ocean voyage because should you be drowned, your corpse will be treated more kindly if it's well-dressed. Mm-hmm. And that line is taken directly from um ocean notes and foreign travel for ladies.
1: Wow. It's unbelievable, isn't it?
2: And it's probably some but it really it does make you realise that at that time, even on those very uh strong, very you know, safe ocean liners, it was possible to have disaster and tragedy. I mean we only need to think of Titanic and drowning was a real possibility. And when that book was written, um, the uh, Ocean Notes and Foreign Travel for Ladies, which was uh, pre-Titanic, the ships were less safe and less powerful. And this really was something that um, that could happen to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But to think that they said such things aloud, uh, you know, they, they might be true later on, but to think that they actually said those sorts of things aloud or wrote them down and as, as instructions back then, just wow, you yeah. know. We've come a long way, but, you know, reaching back not so far, it's, it's unbelievable.
2: <laughs> no, it's pretty its pretty amazing, isn't it? It, it was um, very much another world and that's what the research felt like. It felt like I was going into another world and all of that was intensified um, by the closed world of the ship. Yeah, indeed. And they okay. were spectacular. I mean, they were oh, magnificent absolutely. floating they they would call them floating palaces, but really it was more like a small um, a small floating town.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and you, um, the Aquitania, which is what you based your book on, that was after the sinking of the Titanic as well, wasn't it?
2: Yes, it was. And Aqu- one of the uh, boasts on Aquitania's publicity material was that there were enough lifeboats for all, as That's opposed nice. to on Titanic
1: you'd hope yeah 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 so um with writing a mystery I'm guessing it's hard to judge what details your reader knows at each stage and given that you know all of the detail and where it's going all of the time so how did you ensure that you're revealing enough information but not too much at a time?
2: Uh, it was really challenging. It was really, really difficult to do, and it's quite uh, there's quite a few twists and turns in the plot, and plenty of red herrings, as a good mystery has. Yeah. Um, and the The thing is, it kept changing as I was writing it. It was a very slippery thing to keep hold of because as soon as I changed one thing, it would cause a whole lot of other things to change. And the plotting was fiendishly difficult. Um, But, you know, fascinating, like doing a a jigsaw puzzle where the pictures keep changing on the pieces. Uh, But I found it fascinating to do. And the part that I discovered was the hardest because this was very much a learning experience for me. I think the hardest part was writing the sleuthing of the kids because I knew what was going to happen but what they were going to find out when and what they were going to be able to uh, work out from those things, uh, how they were going to move towards solving the mystery was really difficult because, of course, you don't want to give it away too early and you don't want your readers halfway through to say oh well i know who did it and um uh and be right (laughs) uh so it it was really it was really tricky writing the sleuthing i think was the hardest part
1: i bet with every twist and turn i was just admiring you more really and and you know i didn't pick it (laughs) i didn't pick it wonderful (laughs) so there you go yeah i i got to the i was like wow well done (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because, you know, I don't think I've re- I don't think I've read a mystery since I've written started writing middle grade and just keeping track of a normal plot is quite difficult just you know what you've planted before and and you know what your reader knows. So doing it as a mystery, I was just like wow, yeah, this must have been really hard.
2: <laughs> it was really hard and there were a lot of there were a lot of constraints because there were only a certain number of days uh of the voyage um that I had to play with. And the, um, the theft of the diamond, it had to happen, you know, it couldn't happen too early, it couldn't happen too late. There were a lot of um there were a lot of sort of constraints around what the characters could and couldn't do. And uh, Peppa had this pesky governess who's supposed to be keeping a very, very strict eye on her. So there's a (laughs) there's a lot of work she has to do just to get out from under her watchful eye yes so it was it was definitely tricky to write
1: absolutely and then she is in first class and she's cavorting with people from kids from other classes
2: (laughs) yes exactly and um uh, which and she's the captain's daughter i mean people there are plenty of people who know who she is
1: (laughs) amazing well you did an amazing job thank you so the protagonist, Peppa, is a plucky young girl who befriends um, a girl and two boys on the cruise. How important was it for you to write a mystery with a girl protagonist that boys would also enjoy? Would that, was that a conscious choice?
2: Uh, look, Peppa was, Pepper was a very uh, clearly formed character in my mind when uh, I started really... Uh, thinking about this story in earnest and the other characters kind of developed as I got into the planning and and as I got into the writing and so I didn't really think of Pepper in a calculating way as in this is a character who should appeal to this section of readership it was that I wanted her to be uh who she was which is uh quite uh a plucky, spirited, thoughtful, uh, quite empathetic, interesting person. And I think a person like that would appeal to anyone regardless of gender. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, I've got two boys that We'll, we won't read anything if it's got pink or if the cover's too girly. So that often it comes down to the cover. Once I get past the cover, it's fine.
2: <laughs> mm. so, and isn't that a ripper of a cover? I am I am just in love with the cover. It's by it, um, Sylvia Morris, an illu- a wonderful illustrator, and I am just wrapped with it.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because actually I, I, I love it and I've, I don't actually have her cover i actually just have an advanced reading copy that doesn't have oh, okay. <laughs> and i've actually mentioned because sylvia morris um i met a long time ago and i've seen a few of her covers and she is an amazing illustrator um so i'm glad you brought that up because i did glimpse it online as i was sort of you know researching a few details and then oh that's a beautiful cover i've only got this plain one <laughs>
2: yeah but, they did a good job with the advanced reading copy cover too but sylvia's cover is just it is stunning i could not have wished for better i love it
1: yeah gorgeous uh so mystery you know we're, we're talking about it in in terms of uh, what's out there um and you've already said how difficult it was to do do you think you'll write more
2: i do Yes, I think I'm a little bit hooked. Oh, good. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And I learned so much. I mean, I learned it was an enormous project research-wise and plotting-wise and writing-wise, um, but the the relationship that I have with my wonderful editor, with the wonderful people at firm, made it, it was just a fantastic process. I felt like I had really great guidance and support and i learned so much about constructing a mystery um, through working with them and workshopping and bouncing ideas around and through their really um rigorous edits and i would love to do it again
1: well that's great news i'm i'm really happy i i know some um tweens who absolutely love the Murder Most Unladylike series and will definitely love your book and be asking for more so (laughs) (laughs) definitely got an audience out there. So let's turn to some of your other work because I'm intrigued and you are so multi-talented and hardworking. I know you've written and illustrated picture books and I think some junior fiction as well but you've also published a graphic adaptation of The Great Gatsby and more recently Hamlet. Can you tell us how these came about?
2: So these were quite a long time ago. Um, Gatsby Gatsby was published in 2007 and Hamlet in 2010. And Gatsby was an enormous project, something that I worked on for five years before I even knew if anyone would publish it. And that was at a time when there was really no literary graphic novel publishing in Australia. Um, It was a a mad long shot, but it was a, a, you know, real labour of love. And um, Alan and Unwin, terrific, um, adventurous uh, publishers who took it on, and uh, and it went well. It was, uh, you know, it was terrific. And that opened the door for me to then uh, adapt hamlet and another huge uh, that was, that took me three years to do while i was working as a lawyer and you know incredibly uh incredibly immersive project Gra- uh, you know grappling with hamlet is mm-hmm. is a big big task and yes. i loved every minute
1: wow as you said um graphic novels weren't quite as popular back then and in the last few years I think they've really taken off and I've bought um, Shakespeare graphic novels for my kids and I don't think we actually have Hamlet I think we do have we have and a couple of the others and they absolutely love them and I know that your Hamlet um, it wasn't that you haven't illustrated people you've illustrated is it inkblots was that what it was?
2: Inkblots and Gatsby are also non-human characters so they were very um that they were very unusual adaptations, but very faithful adaptations, both of them.
1: Okay. Which is which is great fun. <laughs> and great on um yeah. Alan and Unwin to take them on because yeah, it is it is a risky thing for publishers to do something like that, especially when you know back when graphic novels weren't so popular.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. So that was a real, well both of those books were a real adventure. Lovely. Um yeah. Yeah, it is. it's an enormous amount of work. Um, working out uh, the, the kind of interplay of the visuals and the words, it's, yeah, it's an enormous amount of work. Mm. And just really uh, grappling with texts that are as complex and as beautiful as the, the novel of The Great Gatsby or the play Hamlet, um, it, there's a lot to it. It's, um, <laughs> it demands a lot of you. Absolutely. In terms of interpretation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, well done. <laughs> Cause yeah, it must have been a real labour of love and and yeah, a lot of work. Um, so would you like to talk about or plug any middle grade books that you are loving at the moment that you think that the world should know about?
2: Oh, I'm trying to think I've been um I've been plunged deep into research and I'm trying to think what was the last middle grade novel that I read um I loved and this is not super new but I loved Lenny's book of everything I just thought that was an extraordinary book um and I I've loved uh the latest Rebecca Stead amazing I loved Nova Wheatman's sick bay I've I've loved lots of books
1: fantastic oh Lenny's book of everything was my book of I think 2019 now it's going Yeah, it's almost I almost forget about last year, but anyway, we can do that. I know it feels like
2: (laughs) longer ago than 2019, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) It does. I think it was at the beginning of the year, though, so it's probably nearly two. But still, I mean, I see it recommended a lot in um in book recommendation groups still. So yeah, yeah,
2: I thought it was amazing, and it for me that was a book that was equally a middle grade book and a book for adults. Yeah. And it could be both things simultaneously. And that was something I kind of kept in mind writing The Detectives Guide because I wanted it to be a book that um, worked for the middle grade readership and that, you know, hopefully that they will love, but that would also be intriguing and entertaining and thought-provoking for adult readers because if I'm writing it, I want to also be engaged and entertained by it.
1: Yes, yeah, and you did you did achieve that. Um... I read this over Christmas, over the holiday period, and I had forgotten to put, you know, I was taking advantage of the you know podcast break to read as many adult books as I could. And I forgot to put one in my bag and, but put this in because it had arrived and not that I don't read middle grade for fun. I do, but, you know, it was just, oh, I get to read something that's not middle grade. But so I had this and I read it and I was like, oh, you know, this is, this is amazing. Like <laughs> I could have read this as an adult book anyway, you know.
2: Um, oh um, oh I want to put that on the jacket (laughs) thank you (laughs) Trying to
1: articulate that was quite difficult but anyway (laughs) yeah so no I I enjoyed it you know because sometimes I kind of go okay now I'm in review mode and I'm reading this as you know I'm looking at it from a point of view of my 10 year old or as any child you know and it's not necessarily the same way same way I read adult books um And so sometimes I just go in with that mindset, like this is for kids, you know, I'm reviewing this book rather than I'm just reading this to enjoy because I'm on a holiday. So, you know, I read your book on holiday and, (laughs) and yeah, still, still really enjoyed it sitting on the beach as a holiday, as a holiday read. And so can you tell us a bit more about what you're researching right now? Or is that too early to say? Oh,
2: it's, I it's it's probably a bit too early so uh i what i can tell you is uh same era but in melbourne
1: oh oh wow <laughs> I'm, there. I'm there i can't wait yeah. awesome. which
2: was a very different um a very different society i was reading a book called australia in the 1920s and one of the first things that it said was unlike america australia didn't have a roaring 20s <laughs> you know things were a bit um more pinched here i Um, think
1: yes yes (laughs) i can imagine um amelia Mellor's grandest bookshop in the world is set uh i think it's late 1800s uh, yeah fabulous and that's another one that
2: i enjoyed (laughs) yeah
1: so um i'm about to start reading that with my boys actually soon so um, yeah i'll definitely be keeping an eye out for your one sure. exciting so nikki where can we find you online if our listeners are interested in checking out your books
2: uh, well i am pretty active on instagram um so you can look for me there um there's there's illustration stuff writing stuff and quite a bit of roller skating stuff oh, <laughs> at the moment on there uh and i have a website which is um so yes please look me up fantastic and the detective's guide
1: to ocean travel is now available in all good bookshops thank you for joining me today Nikki it's been a real pleasure thank you so much for having me
0: Amy Kaufman is a New York Times and internationally best-selling author of middle grade and young adult fiction her multi-award winning work is slated for publication in over 30 countries and has been described as a game changer by Shelf Awareness, Stylistically Mesmerising by Publishers Weekly and Out of This World Awesome by Kirkus. Her work, in development, her work is in development for TV and film and has taken home multiple Aurelius Awards, an ABIA a Gold Inky, multiple best of lists and has been shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. Her latest middle grade novel, The World Between Blinks, was co-written with award-winning author Ryan Groden. So hi Amy and welcome to Middle Grade Mavens.
3: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Now I probably should read Ryan's bio as well because I want to sort of chat about how you are you know, a collaboration. So, Ryan yeah. is an award-winning author of seven novels, including the Carnegie-nominated *For Wolf Boy*, *Wolf Duology*, *Invictus*, *The Walled City*, and *The World Between Blinks*. She resides near Charleston, South Carolina, with her husband, daughter, and wolf dog. Well, that's no surprise, is it? So. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we've heard your collective bios, but of course, as mavens, we have to know, how did you meet and how did that progress to you writing together?
3: Well, we met, I'm just realising as I say this, we met 10 years ago, actually. We met in 2011. Uh, We both had our debut novels coming out in the United States in 2013. And over there, there's, there's a practice where, Uh, authors who have their very first uh, young adult or middle grade novel coming out in the same calendar year often sort of band together in a bit of a you know there'll be an online forum or something and it's a sort of a emotional support group a place you can cheer for each other or be stressed together or you know ask questions and say you know my my editor keeps using this word and I should have asked early what it meant and I didn't does anyone know and all that stuff and um so you know that starts a couple of years out because the journey from when your book is bought by a publisher to when your book is you know published is is often a couple of years yep. uh, so we met you know we met in two thousand and eleven uh, and were very quickly drawn to each other um, you know sometimes you just spot someone in a group and you know that person's going to be your friend and and I think we both felt that way about each other very quickly uh, but it took us a long time to actually find an idea that made us suddenly realize that that we had to write this book and we both had to write it together yep yep so the the way the world between blinks came to be uh, was one day uh, we 're both with the same literary agent uh, Tracy Adams, and one day Tracy posted this article on facebook uh, and it was about this little island that had appeared off the state where she lived, uh, North Carolina, and it was sort of, you know, tides and winds and, and, you know, whatever had conspired so that just for a little while these sandbars had, had accumulated enough that they had actually become a little island. And, wow. And, you know, it, a couple of little plants had started growing on it and there were sort of whale bones and shark's teeth. And it, it came into the news because people started asking the National Park Service who owned it. Yeah. because it was off the coast of a national park and people thought you know well here's territory up for grabs and the national parks put out a statement saying right now it is unclaimed territory uh if it forms a land bridge to the national park it will become ours but nobody get too excited because it will be gone again soon yeah and so tracy posted the article about this island and she said you know an island that's just here for a little while and then it's gone away again authors you know what to do and yep. i said oh do I ever? And Ryan said, Do I ever? And she said, not you two. You two are incredibly busy. Stop it. Yeah. And we said, okay. And then Ryan said, <laughs> It's just that. And then Ryan shared with us the story of the lighthouse that is is in the World Between Blinks. It's where the story begins. Yeah. And it's called the Morris Island Light. And It used to be on uh, a spit of land that was so big that they fought a civil war battle on it. So we're talking, you know, like, it's not just a a skinny little promontory sticking out or anything. And over the the decades and centuries, uh, erosion has worn away that land to the point that it is now completely gone and the lighthouse sticks up from the middle of the ocean guarding a land that isn't there anymore. Like a steeple, yep. And... And Ryan said, you know, you think an island that comes and goes is amazing. What about a lighthouse that's guarding a land that will never be there again? And Tracy said, I mean it. You two are really busy. Don't write a book. And we went, okay, Tracy. And then I emailed Ryan and said, but we will, right? Yes. And she emailed all capital letters. (laughs) Yes. And so six months later, we sent her the first 50 pages of The World Between Blinks. Wow. Surprise. We didn't listen.
0: Oh, I love that. Because the muse cannot be tamed, people.
3: (laughs) Oh, look, it's I mean, I'm a history nerd from way back. You know, that was my my first uni degree was in history. I loved it at school. I I read it recreationally now. And I mean, come on, like a lighthouse that guards a land that isn't there anymore.
0: And there's got to be a way to shove that history in somehow, (laughs) surely.
3: Oh, well, I mean, the, the books I I loved growing up. I mean, I read very widely, but But one of the groups I really loved were the ones that taught me something without teaching me something. You know, I loved Rosemary Sutcliffe and stuff like that where I'd come out knowing a lot about certain things but never having read a lesson. So that was one of the things we wanted to do with this book was you'd encounter a lot of of stuff that you might learn but it was never intended to be a lesson.
0: Yeah, which is actually, um, you probably haven't listened to our review but that's exactly what I said in our review is, I felt like I was learning stuff, but I wasn't meant to, but I was, and it was really like, you know, sneakily done. So, yeah. No, no I, I did listen. I was very it. Oh, Thank you nice. it. <laughs> We just assume nobody ever listens, even though we know people do. But anyway.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I assure you that we do.
0: <laughs> so the process, run us through how a mm-hmm. collaboration works. Now we need the nuts and bolts, Amy, the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. We are taking notes as I'm sure anyone listening is also scribbling away. How does it work?
3: Uh, I mean, this one was interesting because there were a couple of things we needed to juggle. I mean, for me, co-writing is sort of old hat now. You know, yes, I've, I've worked with Megan Spooner, I've worked with Jay Kristoff, so I feel very comfortable doing it. And I think, funnily enough, people often think that because I can, I've done it with three different people, that must mean it's easy. I would say it just means I'm very, very particular about who I choose and when yes. I choose the right person, it's easy. Uh, But in this case, we both needed to plot something and we needed to figure out where our historical research went. And that's where Ryan was wonderful because all of Ryan's books can sort of be categorised as twisty history in some way. You know, Wolf by Wolf is an alternate history uh, where World War II went a very different way. You know, Invictus is a book about a group of time travellers who travel back in time and, for instance, steal something off the Titanic just before it sinks. So she's really good at historical research Uh, so I happened to be in the United States I was on tour for something I want to say my book Obsidio but I'm not sure one of I was on tour for something anyway and Ryan flew into New York and crashed in my hotel room and we basically got a giant box of index cards and wrote down everything we knew that could possibly happen in the book from big to small from you know those those tiny little moments that you you come up with early that sort of are what make you want to write the book for the, the satisfaction of giving the reader that moment or realization through to historical facts through to whatever, and then we just spread them all out on the floor and yep. then we started arranging them into okay well what has to become what has to come before what and you know if 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 okay we know here there needs to be this confrontation, what cool settings do we have available to us which one of them? Could it happen at? And we sort of braided it together. Wow. Um, and then we hung the do not clean the room sign on the door very emphatically to make sure nobody came yes. through when we weren't there. <laughs> Missed Mess, with it.
1: Put all your little cards <laughs>
3: away. Yeah. Here, we tidied it up. Um, but but so, I mean, it was It was so much fun. And then we went away and and we had sort of placeholders as well. We'd say, you know, we know this is is what needs to happen in terms of, say, the kids need to discover this or talk about this, but we don't know where yet. So we went away, did more research, dug up some cool locations. Some of those then in turn dictated cooler things that could happen in the plot. And eventually it was all sort of braided together enough that we could start writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we took one point of view each and we sort of divided it up into roughly where we thought the chapter breaks would fall um, yep. and passed the manuscript back and forth as we as we wrote and we would edit each other as we went as well
0: now I'm going to assume you were Jake and Brian I was, was oh. Marisol yeah oh thank goodness I got that right otherwise I'm like <laughs> I know nothing about the, you know, the book well No, <laughs> no, um, no. I, I wrote Jake and Ryan
3: wrote Marisol.
0: Yeah. Oh. I, and beautifully done, obviously, because, um, you know, I doubt you spoke Spanish, so I could, maybe that was why it was obvious. But also <laughs> yeah. Jake just felt really like, I think when you have an Aussie voice, you have a real authentic voice, even though he's not Australian in the book. But, yeah, I just felt like, mm,
3: well, I think that's Amy. I think I'm going to ask her that. But, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a bit of an international kid in the book, you know, because yes, his mom's a diplomat and he's grown up bouncing yeah. everywhere. He's got a bit of everything in him. So he does have a bit of Australia in him because he, he spent time here. Yeah. Um, and yep. I mean, I'm definitely an Aussie, but I did grow up bouncing around a bit as well. So I have a bit of that in me in yep. me as well. Yeah.
0: So in this long sort of, you know, you've got all these cards on the floor. Did you put half mm. aside for the second book? And sort of think we'll um, come back to those
3: we put a few aside but not many and and my reasoning there is I always think if you have a good idea don't save it for the sequel because it's like you know when someone recommends a tv series to you and says yep. season three is where it really takes oh, off and you think the well time. hang on like, are you saying that you want me to get through you know two 20 episode seasons before I get to season three that's a really big investment I always think Whatever your best idea is, put it in the book you're writing and trust that you will come up with something else. even better for the next book.
0: Yes. And, yep.
3: I mean, the other part of that, of course, is that by the time you're writing the sequel, the characters have grown and changed and evolved and with if you've done anything right, they're not the same people they were in the previous book. So the stuff that would have been cool or shocking or devastating or exciting in the first book may not be in the same way in the second book. Yeah. You know, in the second book, Jake and Marisol know that the world between blinks exists. So they're not going, wait, what is this? They're like, yep, okay, we're, we're here, we, we know what's up. You know, what's the problem? Yep. So, you That's know, they're, right. they're very different. So, I mean, that did mean that when we went to write the sequel, which we've, we've just handed into to our editor, we um Ooh. we needed to go and do a whole bunch of research. But honestly, I mean, sitting there all day and you know reading websites about cool historical stuff that goes missing and then yes. pinching yourself and going is this really my job you know <laughs> yeah not many people get to do that oh absolutely fantastic. living yeah. the dream yep
0: yeah so as far as editing goes how does a structural edit work with a collaboration talk us through your method
3: uh so so our editor uh hands us back both a sort of a lightly annotated manuscript and also an editorial letter. An editorial letter, you know, breaks down everything from, you know, thematic questions to logic questions to it dragged a bit here or I felt that this moment you could make a bit more of this moment, that sort of thing. And the thing that we had particularly asked for help with on the edit was that we really wanted to write about loss in this book. Hmm. And, I mean, you know, it's... It's a funny book and it's a silly book and I it's a it's a wonderful adventure and it's it's not by any means I wouldn't sort of say it's a grief book or it's a loss book, but I hope that it is a really good book to give to kids who maybe have, you know, either you know lost someone, maybe you know maybe a grandparent or or a, a yeah. pet even, or who have you know lost something a bit less tangible like they've had to move schools or they've had to move houses or yeah you know something has you know a friend has moved away something has changed we wanted to write about that because you know I lost my dad a few years ago and Ryan lost her mum while we were writing the book and and she knew that oh. that that would happen you know that yeah. was something we were prepared for uh, and it doesn't make it any less awful but but it wasn't a shock and so it was something that was very much on our minds and yeah. we um We wanted to write about the idea that that sometimes we try to hold on to everything and and too tight and too much you know and and that's what marisol does she she's desperate for her her grandmother's house not to be sold she's desperate to hang on to every tiny bit and sometimes we let go of things too easily because you know jake has lost too many friends and too many places and so now he just discards everything never holds on at all and You know, I mean, it's something that we all have to wrestle with, not just as kids, but as grown-ups. you know, what do you hold on to and what do you let go of and, and how do you tell the difference? Yeah. And, you know, and we don't always get it right. And so we wanted that to be, you know, something that really wove through the book. So that was something that we asked our editor to, to also keep his eye on as we worked. Yeah. And um, so when we get back that manuscript and that letter, uh, we sat down and we went through the letter and just sort of talked through all of it and thought you know what do we just go yep that's that's an absolute gimme we're definitely doing that and then there would be other parts where he wouldn't necessarily say why don't you do this he would say I'm wondering if this scene could have a little more pace in it or could you know slow down a little and we discuss ways that we might do that Um, this is the same editor that I had worked with on my entire ice Falls trilogy so we were very in sync and there was a very high level of trust Uh, so there would be very little that he would suggest that I would would not want to do and um, once we'd figured that out then our next job was we went through the manuscript and we sort of took all of the decisions we'd made and transferred them into comments inside Microsoft Word saying do this here do this here do this here and then we just started editing uh, using track changes and each day or each couple of days we'd pass it back and forth and say I've done all of this and the other person would have a look accept the changes to keep the manuscript from you know, because at, at some point otherwise word just breaks under the, oh, the weight of yes. the track changes. Yes. Um, ask me how I know. And, yes. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, slowly but surely just getting rid of all those comments and scrubbing it cleaner and cleaner. Yep. Oh, until you're done. Amazing. So it's amazing. it's a very iterative process but, you know, it's sort of how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time just yep. I think Most authors, there there may be some authors out there who are so well-adjusted that this doesn't apply, but everyone I know, when they get an editorial letter, even one that is bang on the money, their very first response is, you know, indignation or personal insult or distress or, you know. everybody hates
2: me. Right. I'm going to eat worms. Yeah, my (laughs) book
3: is terrible and I'm, you know, it's terrible and I'm terrible and I'm going to give up. Um, And also... Also, as well as my book being terrible, how dare they? Because my book is great. Um, <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, hey, don't the see of, the shining
0: light that I am.
3: <laughs> you know, it's a Walt Whitman. I am vast and I contain multitudes. I yes. can be both outraged and completely convinced you're right at the same time. So yes. Yes. We, um, my, my, my process also includes read it, take a couple of days and then come back and find out none of it's as bad as I thought it was. And actually Absolutely. it's all very clever. And all very yep.
0: helpful it's so. rip the band-aid off and then have a yeah. look at the wound later
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> very much so <laughs> and I mean I've never done an edit that didn't make my book better so of course yeah you know. and I've got a
0: friend who she's like oh yeah because her debut she'd worked on it for a lot of years and so her mm-hmm. editorial editor wasn't that big but then her second one she's
3: like it was reams it was reams I'm like yeah I can imagine <laughs> right like that's I think the and for a lot of people the first book they sell it is polished within an inch of its yes. life and so they do get a slightly you know unfair idea of what an editorial letter is going to be and then of course you know because whenever anyone says how long did your first book take to write oh, yeah. the answer is really how old are you when you finished writing it a lifetime, Yeah. You know, if you're 30, it took you 30 years. If you're 40, it took you 40 years. You were prepping and learning all that time. Yes. And your second book, the answer is usually like six months or a year. So surprise, surprise, it's different. And with editors who I know really well and have worked with for many years and have that really strong relationship of trust with, um, I will tend to hand them something that is about 75% as good as I know how to make it. Yep. because I don't want to make it one, like I don't want to polish every sentence within an inch of its life, because it just means I'm going to have wasted an enormous amount of time when they come in and quite rightly suggest that I remove that entire chapter. Yes. So, yes. you know, early on, I think you want them to know that you know how to do the thing, that you know how to write. But later, you know, you, they know that, you know that. So you're really saying, here it is. Tell me, tell me if there's anything you want me to move around before we really get down to the nitty gritty. Yeah. But that makes for bigger letters and editors like
0: to edit that is their job wild let's, huh? give them, let's give them some work
3: hey <laughs> well I don't think I can be accused of, of 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 cutting off their work at any point that's for sure oh, I love it
0: so the cover is awesome and I'm a bit of a cover snob I judge a book by its cover so yours is by mm-hmm. Julia Murray did Isn't you have really any incredible. input into The Conjuring? And do first cover glimpses still make you pee pants excited
3: even after all those books? Oh, look, I don't know what I did in a past life because I get the best covers of just anyone I know. You do. And I have just staggeringly little to do with them. So oh, I feel like I wow. can kind of join everyone else in admiring them because it's not my genius.
2: Yes. Uh, I
3: did not my... My wonderful Australian um, publishers at Harper Collins found Julia and, and commissioned her, and she came back with uh, three different concepts, and which were, I mean, frankly, any one of them just would have been perfect. And you know, they were these beautiful pencil sketches. I think they're actually up on her her Instagram account. Uh, she's she's put up the the various concepts. Yeah, uh, if anyone's interested at sort of seeing you know how these things come together, and uh which is if you look up Julia Murray illustration you'll you'll find it. I think it's J. Yep. Perfect. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh everyone at Harper and Ryan and I all had the same favorite. So that yep. made life very easy. And I think, you know, a lot of illustrators are often put in the position of needing to illustrate a cover for something they haven't read, uh, not because they're too lazy to read it but because it doesn't exist yet yes. uh, or because, you know, it doesn't exist in a form they can read. Uh, and Julia uh, took so much trouble to get to know the text and put in all of these wonderful little touches, you know, around the back, uh, all of the little charms that the kids wear yes. on the necklaces in the book, yep. so many great little things. Uh, so, oh, my goodness, I just... I just love that cover. There's um, Harper have, have made a beautiful poster of it that's going up in bookshops, and I've actually got one so that I can get it framed for my house.
0: Definitely. And must. I do have yep.
3: a heap of wall space, but it's just so beautiful that yep. I just thought, I just want that. It's
0: just and so I've, lovely. I've got a nine year old, and they she's pretty um, advanced, I guess, in reading, but when she sees a cover, I know in a second if she's going to read that book because she Mm -hmm. goes and she looks really close and then she turns it over. She reads the blurb. Yep, Mm -hmm. I'll read that. So honestly, it does sell. It doesn't matter (laughs) what's inside if you don't get it right with the cover. So, yeah,
3: yep. I mean, we grown-ups are no better. I I am no better. She's she's
0: learned it from me because I, yeah, anyway. (laughs) human nature. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I've done a little digging and was ecstatic Mm -hmm. to discover you have your own podcast on writing, which, of course, was released during the year that shall not be named. I guess we (laughs) should say 2020 in case anyone's listening to this in 10 years time. Um, But we do love promoting other podcasts here at The Maven. So can you tell us about yours?
3: Oh, thanks. I would love to. Uh, So it's called Amy Kaufman on Writing. Uh, and you can find it wherever you get fresh podcasts uh, or at my website just at amikoffman.com/slash podcast. And it's a writing craft podcast, and each episode is about 10 minutes long. And it's for writers and it's also for readers who are interested in how writers do what they do. So yep. in each episode, I just answer one very specific question from a listener. So you can submit a question at my website as well. And you know, they, I talk about stuff like how do you know where your story should begin? How do you know where your chapter should end? How do you do world building? You know, stuff like that. And I I try to keep it really practical. I break it everyone break it down into a few steps each time. I give an exercise you can do at the end. And yeah, I put it together so that if you're a writer, you can apply it to your writing, and if you're a reader, you can do the exercise by picking up a book and and looking at it and. Getting a little bit of X-ray vision on how we do what we do, but um, I've made sure that it is completely school suitable, so there's no advertising on it, and I don't swear uh, because I know in some schools that's a that's a barrier. So I um, am just having fun with it. I nearly didn't, so I was all set to go, and then I nearly didn't release it because I thought, oh, it's 2020, everyone's doing a podcast now. Yep, and then I thought. You know, though, I'm just doing it. I'm doing it for fun. I'm doing it as a passion project because I love it. And one of the things about writing a novel is that you only get that feeling of having actually finished something like once a year.
0: Yes. And,
3: you know, it's a long time between drinks. Whereas with the podcast, I get that feeling now, you know, I'm doing 10 episode seasons. I'm actually recording season two right now. Um, and I've got a, a guest episode about to come out from my my beloved Ryan Groudon uh, specifically about uh, history research and, oh, and wow. how to use it to make your book better because, you know, I just, she could teach a masterclass. I learned that much uh, doing The World Between Blinks with her. Yep. And, um, yeah, so I'm recording season two right now, and it's just fun. It's just fun yep. to talk about this stuff. And every so often as I'm writing a script, I think, oh, that's quite insightful, eh? Right? Oh, so you could probably use that in what you're doing right now. So <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. as well. just yeah. go and listen to your own podcast and go, that's how I write a book, isn't it? That's what I do. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, my my hope is that and I also I heard from a lot of people who were using it for homeschooling as well. Who yes. were, you know, because it's ten minutes, you can usually get them to sit still and listen to something for ten minutes. And yes you know, then give them an exercise to do afterwards or, you know, work into their own writing. So, yeah, I've been having a lot of fun with it. Yeah,
0: you know, I sent it to Pamela because she's a homeschooler and mm. I'm like, this is pure gold. And she's like, oh, I've had a listen. And she's messaged me back, it is pure gold. I'm like, yes, because <laughs> I, I, I'm a big fan of short books and short mm-hmm. talks and short podcasts. So bring on really? all the shortness and, yeah, it's very succinct. And I also understand that pod you get when you, you know, you publish an episode and then you start to see people are listening. It's like, oh, yes, right. you know, once again.
3: Yeah, and I mean, quite honestly, I didn't think anyone would listen at all. And I now know, for instance, that they have a um, top chart in Trinidad and Tobago because we hit Fantastic. that the other week. And like... There you go. Live and learn. Um, but, yeah, I've had listeners from all around the world and, you know, in a lot of places where I wouldn't have thought there was a big English language yeah. uh, podcast listening community. I didn't didn't know that they did a lot of English language writing podcasts in Russia, but here we find ourselves.
0: Maybe all the expats
3: um, are there listening
0: maybe.
2: Okay.
0: maybe, Maybe. That's it. But, yeah, it's,
3: it's been a lot of fun and the listeners have just been lovely.
0: Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to the books. Do you mm. have an aha mom- moment you can share with us? Um, mm. Perhaps uh, someone who's connected with your writing, or um, someone who's maybe sent you a letter that has really changed their life and in turn changed yours.
3: Oh gosh, um, I mean the answer is yes. I'm just I'm just sort of trying to think which one to to go with because i think the answer that's sort of at the root of of all of this um and it's uppermost in my mind because funnily enough i've just finished recording a podcast episode about it is that the moments that people have responded to the most are the moments when i'm really vulnerable they're the moments when i'm really really honest about something i have felt or something i have feared or something i have wondered about because those are almost always the moments when people you know think oh it's not just me I'm not the only one who wondered that yeah and you know for instance uh when I was writing my my YA trilogy um The Illuminae Files with with Jay Kristoff uh it is it is no spoiler to say that in in book two there's a character who loses a parent because this is a, a series known for its high death toll yeah and uh my dad had been ill for many years and between the the drafting of book three and the editing of book three, uh, my dad passed away. And I came back to edit that book and I looked at this character who had, had lost their parent in book two and in book three they were running around doing action sequences. And I thought, oh, no, oh, okay, no, you've gotten that wrong. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's devastated. And so I I went through and I, and I, and I chatted to, to Jay about it and I said, you know, I'm still in this place right now where... You know, I see someone walking down the street and I see the silhouette and just for a moment I think it's my dad and then I realise it's yep. not my dad and I realise why it couldn't be my dad and that it will never be my dad again yep. and it's it's gutting, you know. Yep. And I talk to him about the moments that I have like that and, you know, the moment I think that anyone has when they're grieving where, and it's funnily enough, I think a lot of people have actually had this experience with COVID as well. The moment of where you suddenly have this moment where you go, you know what, I've been really good. I've done everything that was asked of me. I've yep. put myself through it all. I've followed every rule. I've done everything nicely. Where's my reward? Why isn't yep. it over now? Yep. And you think that about grief and you think that about lockdown and you think it about all kinds of things. And I talked to him about that and, you know, he was he was very affected by it and he said, if you can, I think that you should put some of that in. Yep. And, and I did as we edited and as we toured that book I had all these people come up to me in the signing lines over and over and say, oh, I'm really sorry that you lost someone. And I would at like, first I was surprised and I would say, oh, I, I did, you know, how did, how did you know? Because my dad had been a very private man who didn't want to be mentioned on on social media. So I hadn't. Yep. Um, and they would say, oh, because I have, and you wrote about it. So I know, yeah. you know, and there were, I've I've gone on to write about grief in a lot of books, um, you know, as we do in in blinks as well, and I think probably the moment that has affected me most the recently, um, the most recently was, and I will see if I can do this without getting emotional, um, a reader who wrote to us after um, the Aurora Rising series came out, um, book two, Aurora Burning, and again I'm, I'm I won't spoil it for anyone, but there's a moment when. Uh, two characters are discussing losing someone and one of them says to the other one essentially that if someone happens to die and your last interaction wasn't the one that you would have hoped for or you had been meaning to call them but you didn't or you know you brush them off or, or whatever it doesn't matter because the relationship is not that one moment the relationship is the whole of the thing yeah. And that is just one tiny speck that is totally meaningless. The whole relationship is you saying, I love you to each other. And it doesn't matter what you just happened to say just now. And we got a letter from someone. And, and I, I wrote about that because my my 90-year-old grandmother of my heart, my chosen grandmother, um, said that to me once. She said, Amy, if, if I ever happen to just keel over, I just want you to know that if you've been meaning to call, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> and we talked That's about us. that. we talked about how we've been saying, "I love you since she became my nanny when I was five, yeah and someone wrote to us and said that their brother had died some years earlier, had been shot just out of nowhere, and that the last thing that they had said to their brother uh was to i'm um, how shall I was to get lost let's say uh only that that was not the language that they'd used and yep. and they'd parted on ill terms and this person said that reading that had helped them actually begin to understand that that was okay. Yeah. And that their brother would never have thought, oh, we'll just, it's all ruined now, the whole, yep. you know, the whole decades of our relationship because of what you said to me at the last conversation. It's all over. Yeah. And the idea of being able to do that for someone was, it, it still makes me really emotional. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's what, that's not something that's special or unique about my books is the thing. That's books. Yeah. Books do that for people all the time. You know, ev- everyone's books do that for people, whether it's, you know, someone feeling like they're the only one who feels shy and realising they're not or realising they're the only one who's scared of going to a new school or a new job or whatever and they're not, you know, or whereas yeah. the only one who thinks, oh, I look like an idiot, I will now lie awake all night dissecting the ways in which I was just an idiot you know all of that stuff is in books yeah. and helps all of us
0: and it's always surprising I mean you never set out to write an aha moment you just you don't no. they come they don't know yeah. it, was,
3: it was absolutely just the right thing to write at the time yep and I think I, I have the only thing that is deliberate about it if anything is that I have become more and more open as the years go by I've become more and more willing to just write that stuff without putting it on on the page yeah because I know I'm not alone and I know you know it's a trust fall when you do that you are trusting your readers to catch you and they've never failed yeah so you know I I know that I can now so
0: well I am I at the end of the year every year Pamela and I we do our top 20 and mm-hmm. this year, Pamela's like, "Ah, oh, and I just want to um oh no, just want to say which uh, interviews I've found the best." And I was like, "Oh, okay, put me on the spot." And she's like, oh, I really love this one and this one this one." And I said, "Actually, the, the interviews I have loved are the ones that I've cried with the author.
2: <laughs> she's mm-hmm. like, "What?"
0: <laughs> and I'm like, "Not even joking. So yeah, yeah, if you were teary, Amy, I would have been teary, mm-hmm. and then we could have put it in my top 20 at the end of the year, so <laughs> all good."
3: Yeah, it's, yeah, I think, I don't know, I think that stuff is so important. Yeah. And I grew up getting it from books, as we all did. So, you know, you've got to pass it on.
0: Now, I have read, just to switch track again, I Mm -hmm. guess, in your frequently asked questions, that you're actually undertaking a PhD in creative writing.
3: Hmm. How do you? Enough.
0: How does one do this when they're already a very successful author, and <laughs> how do you think it will shape your future
3: author self? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so yeah, so I'm doing it at La Trobe University, which I'm absolutely loving. I have a wonderful cohort of students there, uh, and I am writing about uh, intersectional feminism in young adult science fiction and fantasy literature, which sounds pretty full on, but yep. what it really means is this wonderful generation of writers uh, who, uh, I'm, I'm taking books from kind of 2015 to about 2020, who, who, wrote, who grew up reading sci-fi and fantasy and loved it and said, oh, it's really cool, but what if people in it looked like me? Whether yes. that means in terms of race or gender or sexuality or disability, you know, or class, uh, it's about, you know, or culture, it's about people who grew up with you know loving the stuff that they read but their contribution is to bring you know themselves to it and to bring their background to it and, and their knowledge yeah. um and i'm i'm doing a lot of you know i'm doing text analysis but i'm also doing a lot of cool interview work where i'm i'm going to be speaking to them about you know because for a lot of them you know it took them a while to even realize hang on a minute everyone in this is white <laughs> you
2: know, everyone yes. in this is-
3: is is straight and able-bodied and and cisgendered and every you know this is you know in in whatever respect this isn't like me and so you know I sort of want to talk to them about that journey of realization and you know what you had to what you have to learn and what you have to unlearn in order to you know put it into your writing and um what you what choices you make what you encounter in publishing along the way all that sort of stuff so I'm really enjoying it I think I mean it's very much it's sort of it affects my writing, but also my writing is what led me to want to write this yeah to study this in the first yep. place you know it's always been i've I've written very diverse books always um you know i've I've worked with sensitivity and authenticity readers you know since since my second novel before i I knew what they were and before they were sort of frequently discussed in the industry yep. and it's, all, it's just something that's, that's always interested me and, so, and there's a real dearth of academic work in this area, so, yeah. you know, in YA in general. So although it's just in this really exciting time where it's starting to build now, so I'm thoroughly enjoying it. That's amazing.
0: How you fit it in, I'll never know, but, yeah, it sounds like if you're pouring yeah. into what you love in another avenue yeah. that's not necessarily on a deadline,
3: that's, that's amazing. It is, and I've got really great supervisors who are just, you know, who are so, who really make me think and ask smart questions, yeah. and you know, um, I mean, one of them is is uh, Kelly Gardner, who's a, a middle, oh, well, yes. a novelist in many things, but are, in, of particular interest to you, a, a middle grade novelist. Yes, yep. Uh, you know, yep, we've read own, Kelly's first book. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Her, her, I think her Firewatcher series is. Yeah. Bad fantastic uh and actually a really good wreck i think for anyone who enjoyed the world between blinks mm. i would say yes you know, Hedberg, kelly Gardner's stuff next because you know it's um it's time slip history you know it's yeah, yeah i think it'd be fantastic See, Is book yeah. one
0: called brimstone or am i yes brimstone i'm not right. sure is if that's the one? first one i've forgotten what the first one is but yep. yeah maybe. i've got it somewhere yeah. on my shelf yeah
3: it is brimstone is, is number one
0: there you go um, yep
3: so yeah I think anyone who likes blinks that's probably I think that's that's a place that that teachers parents librarians could send them next
0: yeah which is so necessary because once they do start doing those kinds of texts they do they you see it all the time what mm-hmm. next <laughs> like oh yeah. okay and actually I work <laughs> yeah. in a in a public library so yeah I'm always mm-hmm. on the lookout for what do you pair with that book what right. comes next yeah. Yeah. Well, it has been a delight, Amy. So, what is next in the wings for Amy and Ryan? Or should we actually have one of those mash-up names like Amyan or Rymy?
3: <laughs> oh, we should. Yeah, we should give that some thought, shouldn't we? Yeah, it's got to be something good. There.
0: I think Rymy kind of works better than Amyan, but.
3: Yeah, I think. Yeah.
0: yeah Yeah, I'll
3: run Rymy faster.
0: What's Rymy up to um, next?
3: Uh, well so we've just handed in the world between blinks book two yeah uh, and we're waiting on waiting on edits mm-hmm.
0: uh,
3: that will be out as far as I'm aware uh, twelve months after the first one which means it'll be coming in uh, feb here in yes. here in Australia uh, you know we're certainly tracking for that so I don't I don't know any reason it won't be uh, and Apart from that, we're we're both knee deep in drafting all the other stuff we're always yes. working on. I'm I'm knee deep at the moment in uh drafting uh the sequel to The Other Side of the Sky with Meg Spooner. Uh, yep. And which, my goodness, we had to rewrite the end of that book four times to get it right. And I don't mean oh, edit wow. it, I mean rewrite it. And we had to rewrite the beginning of book two four times. It seems to be the oh. magic number to get that one right. Um, but we've got it now it's good it's working wow uh, and you've just got to remind yourself you know this is like my 20th book I definitely know how to do this it might not feel like it <laughs> yes. but if I just keep going <laughs> it, it, it always works and it will again um, yeah and I'm also I'm working on a, a YA project that will be my first solo YA as well oh
0: great so, yeah oh, very lots, exciting lots on oil. I don't
3: know how you get any sleep but anyway well, actually, you know what? Before we wrap, actually, let, let me tell you how I get sleep because I actually think it's really, really important. Because Please tell me. Please. I, um, I mean, the, the reason I, I want to say something about it is because I am a full-time author and my husband is a full-time dad. So the way that oh, I get this done is actually my nine-to-five job. Yes. And I have all of the support that, frankly, a man usually has. Yes. And... it's really important to say that because i noticed when i went back to work and started writing um i started getting all of these comments from women and what they were meaning to do was compliment me but what they were accidentally doing was insulting themselves because they'd say something like i can't believe you're back drafting already i don't think i'd even washed my hair when my daughter was you know however old yeah um and You know, I mean they were genuinely, they they weren't saying, Oh, I bet you're abandoning your child. They really meant supportively, wow, good for you that you're doing it, but they were sort of knocking themselves down by comparison. And it made me realize, oh, it's really important that I make clear that the way I do this, yes, is I write nine to five, five days. I mean, I don't literally write nine to five, you would die, but I work nine to five, you know, five days a week. And I, you know, and I it's my full time job. So, yep. so that's how I sleep is I, I have my weekends and evenings and well, yep. for many years, I did work a, a full-time day job and then write in the evenings. And that was yep. back-breakingly hard at times yep. and brain-breakingly hard at times, but, but that's not what I do now. And I do like to say that because I think otherwise, you know, you risk contributing to this situation where yep. people think, oh, well, you know, you risk, you're contributing to that pressure to have it all.
0: Yeah, definitely. That I don't,
3: I don't ever want to add to.
0: Although even in being a full time writer, you have a lot of projects to juggle, <laughs> so that's oh, kind of yeah, what no, I mean. Yeah.
3: Like, how yeah, do you, that is true. What's going to be today? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I do have pretty intense project management skills, and my my I plan my year on a a yearly, a quarterly, a monthly, a weekly, and a daily yes. basis. So when so, I wake yep. up every morning, I have a specific job already planned out that needs to yep. be done. So, Absolutely. Um, and I need that because it's sort of like otherwise you're never done oh, and yeah. you could just keep going indefinitely. And I like to knock off and, you know, spend the evening with my family knowing I've done I've done my work for the day. Yes. So, yep.
0: so, yeah, that's my. It has been a pleasure, Amy. Where can we find yeah. you online if our listeners are interested in checking out your many and varied books?
3: <laughs> uh, well, my website, which has has all of them, is uh, amykofman.com. Uh, I am on Twitter at Amy Kaufman, and I am uh, probably a bit more frequently on Instagram at Amy Kaufman author because a lady in Louisiana took my name many, oh, many years ago. Of course she did. Of course she did. Uh, but yeah, so Amy <laughs> Kaufman author over on Instagram. Lovely. Well, thank you again, Amy. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for stopping by middle grade mavens if you'd like to know more about the mavens log on to middlegradepodcast.com or to find julie online stop by julie and and to find pamela stop by www.ueckerman.net